If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the December 1st World AIDS Day edition of I Am Are You? The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Miss Barbecue. I'm Rick Watts. And I'm Steve Pride. Tonight, in observance of World AIDS Day, we talk about the pandemic with three Heroes. LGBT activist and founder of the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt, Cleve Jones. The man credited with discovery of AIDS in 1981, Dr. Michael Gottlieb. And David Mixner, a legendary civil rights activist and best-selling author. This is the final chapter in my recent conversation with David in New York City. On an overcast New York afternoon, As I sat talking with political activist David Mixner, we realized almost at the same time that there was an elephant in the room. A few days before, David had confessed during his one-man show to facilitating the passage of eight friends during the plague of AIDS. For legal reasons, it wasn't a story that I felt should be put on the audio record, but there was no real way to jump cut our conversation past the impact of a virus that wiped out a generation of gay men. I've lost over 300 friends. I lost my partner 12 years. And we came out of the No on Six campaign with our victory. I had gotten Ronald Reagan to come out against it. I went to see him. And that put us over the top, and it was the first time we defeated an initiative anywhere. And isn't it ironic that it was Ronald Reagan to put us over the top, but it was and to deny that is to deny our history and our creativity and and our ability to be inventive politically. But we almost didn't have time to celebrate because no sooner than we had gotten through this huge triumph and victory on winning No on Six, a point of celebrating our sexual liberation, a point of coming out, and as Harvey said, coming out, and I still believe it is today, in a number of ways of coming out, is the most revolutionary act that one can do, and I couldn't agree more with Harvey on that. We got slammed with AIDS. And suddenly all of this liberation, uh, sexual liberation, the liberation politically, I mean, Mecla, no one would accept our money, and no one would come to our events, and checks were returned. And by the way, when we initially met, 
If the police found us, we would have been arrested for holding a gay meeting under Police Chief Davis. So we had to go back a long alley at the Carriage Trade, I think the name of the restaurant was, and we'd enter every 10 minutes so no one would know we were gathering as gay people. And then we would leave every 10 minutes. This was to meet politically. This was 1977. Then Mechleb became so popular after No One Six and we won that we would have 1,500 people at our dinner and people like Ted Kennedy would be the keynote or Gary Hart. It was a must stop. And just as we're enjoying this, we get slammed with this horrible disease. And I've got to tell you that perhaps the most difficult thing that happened was when the CDC called a gay-related immune deficiency grid. That was the first name. I don't think they understood what they were doing, but they were labeling it as a gay disease, which it isn't. And from that moment on, society turned its back on us. Undertakers wouldn't bury us. Nurses didn't have to take care of us. Doctors had to volunteer to treat us. They set up separate wards and hospitals. In New York, it was uh, St. Vincent's. In San Francisco, it was San Francisco General. In L.A., it was Sherman Oaks. And people didn't even have to say they had AIDS. They just say, oh, he's in Sherman Oaks, or he's at San Francisco General, or he's at St. Vincent's. I gave 90 eulogies in two years of young men under 40 years of age, of friends. Of the 30 men who were originally in a group called Orion that led to Mecla, a support group, I'm the only one still alive. It was horrible. We had to learn how to change tubes. We had to learn how to feed. We had to build our own health care systems. We did create the AIDS wards. Society turned their back on us. I remember one time I went to a liberal democratic house on the west side of Los Angeles to ask for money for AIDS Project Los Angeles that was formed by, uh, not me, uh, by uh, Matt Redmond, Nancy Soroya, Diane Abbott, and Peter Scott. I was supportive, but I think it's very important to remember these names because otherwise people will assume I did it, and I didn't do it. I was there. I fought by their side, helped them. And I got this group of liberal Democrats on the west side of Los Angeles for the first time to agree to hear about AIDS, and it was considered a big deal. And it was a private dinner party, and I remember Peter Scott and I put on our best suits. I had a new Versace tie. was real proud. I looked good. And we went and went into this dining room for over 20 people, a sit-down dinner where we were going to make a presentation to liberals. Now, I want to stress this. This wasn't right-wing Republicans. And Peter and I went around the table to find our name tag. And this was a beautiful table filled with china and crystal and candles and the flower centerpieces. And we found our place settings. And at our place settings was paper plates, plastic silverware, and plastic cups. It was perhaps one of the most humiliating moments of my life. And we had to decide what to do. Did we walk out indignantly and make a point of how wrong that was? Or did we remember that our brothers were dying every week and leave with money? 
Well, of course we stayed. Totally humiliated. But we left with $100,000. <laughs> so, you know, that's what we had to do to fight to save our lives. It was a tough time. It was a dark moment. It was like every uh, Friday night disco and Saturday memorial service every week. Thousands. And our government didn't care and our churches didn't care because it had been labeled a gay disease. Our institutions didn't care. Our politicians didn't care, with some exceptions. I mean, they, we, they were political heroes. Congressman Phil Burton in San Francisco. Congressman Henry Waxman was a saint. He was head of the House Health Committee. Congressman Ryan and Bella Apps in New York were there for us. And perhaps more than any other individual politically, and this community should never forget his name, was Senator Ted Kennedy. He bought on openly gay people and openly HIV people and his staff, and day in and day out, he would lead the fight in the Senate of the United States to defeat these horrible, horrible anti-HIV AIDS amendments submitted by Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina. And I remember one in particular, and I think it almost passed by two votes, but it was close. And Teddy worked night and day to defeat it. He was a good friend of mine. And what that legislation would do, we would require every gay person to have a tattoo so people would know to stay away from them so they wouldn't get AIDS. Required every gay man to have a tattoo, not lesbians. That's the kind of shit we had to fight as we're burying our sick and our dying. How we ever recover from that and what the most remarkable storage of that every young LGBT American should remember today that not only did we take care of our second dying, not only did we fight to find a cure and protease inhibitors and take on our government and went filled the jails, we never became filled with hate. We did it all through the darkest of any time that any group would be asked to walk through, and we did it with love. We never became hateful. We never became like our, our oppressors. We should never forget that. It's an extraordinary story of courage and nobility and, and strength. This is part three of a multi-part conversation with David Mixner. Find more information at davidmixner.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Again, that was the final part of our four-part interview. We put it a little bit out of order to accommodate World AIDS Day today. Um, wow. So. It takes my breath away. It, 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 it makes me remember of the fight that we had to go through in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. I mean, they want to tattoo us? Seriously? People forget that, that uh, the times when proposals like that were taken seriously were not that long ago. No, it's not that long and, ago and at and all. It, it, in one sense, it's scary. In another sense, it does give us hope for uh, lands where it is still can, can be very dangerous. Well, 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 I'm really hopeful that, that, that the youth is listening to this because um, 
It's not just I can get HIV now and just take a pill anymore. There was a fight involved, and there is still a fight involved. And and that um, it needs to be taken note of. You know, my blood's boiling right now. And I want to stress, we're talking about three heroes tonight, but there are so many heroes. There in this, are tons this of heroes tonight. Another l- legendary LGBT activist is Cleve Jones, who, among other things, co-founded the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and began the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. From the highs of the 1970s gay revolution to the lows of the mid-1980s when many of his friends were dying of a mysterious disease. From being near death himself to being granted a reprieve with the invention of the triple cocktail. Cleve Jones has experienced the emotional roller coaster of life as a political activist and HIV-positive gay man. Hi, this is Cleve Jones. Cleve, your friend and mentor, Harvey Milk, was assassinated right after Thanksgiving in 1978, a dark time. But just a couple years later, things went from bad to worse. Let's talk about the 1980s. Let's talk about AIDS. Well, I first heard about it 30 years ago. I was working in the state assembly as a consultant to the Democratic Caucus. I was assigned to the health committee. I didn't know anything about it. So I subscribed to every public health journal that I could find, and one of them was the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the MMWR, published by the Centers for Disease Control. And uh, 30 years ago, on uh, I think it was June 5th, if I'm not mistaken, 1981, were the first, I think, three paragraphs describing clusters of gay men who were suffering and dying from Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia. And I clipped that and put it on my bulletin board. I, I remember thinking when I read it that this was probably really bad news. And then, um, I don't remember exactly, but I think within a few weeks, at the most within a couple of months, I got a call from Dr. Marcus Conant, who was a dermatologist at the University of California, San Francisco, And he invited me to come up to the hospital there to see this young man named Simon Guzman, who was in an isolation ward and uh, died the next day. And that was the first first one I saw. And by 1985, it seemed that everyone I knew was dead or dying. I try to convey this to young people. I go to campuses all the time, and I, I try to explain this to them and they don't get it. It's so frustrating. I mean, I think about like when in the 60s when I was little and I would see television programs or hear my parents speak about things that had happened 30 years before. Well, that was the Depression and then World War II. And for a kid growing up in the 60s, hearing about what happened in the 30s, well, it might as well have been the Jurassic period, you know, or the Middle Ages. It was just ancient history. I lived on Castro Street for 10 years before the epidemic, and then I lived there for the first 10 years of the epidemic. And I myself lived with the knowledge that I had the virus for 10 full years before effective treatment started. Um, Man, it it was just so hard. And I felt, um, I think we were all just so desperate to, to try to find any way we could to break through the hatefulness and the lies and the hysteria. And I came up with the, the quilt and, um, 
I think it worked, you know. I think it really did work. I think it really helped a lot. I know it helped. I know it helped a lot of people, not just in our country, but all over the world. It, it put a face where there had only been statistics. Um, it revealed the families we had created, and uh, I think it was really useful. I find it difficult to talk about. I, I, I just recently had a conversation with the woman who sewed the quilt together. She was the one who did all the work. I got all the credit. <laughs> but uh, Cindy McMullen, known as Gert to her friends, to this day is still sewing the quilt together and repairing it and keeping it going. And we were talking, and she said, um, you know, we cried every day for 10 years. And when she said that, I thought it was hyperbole at first, but then I, I realized, no, uh, we cried every single day for 10 years, and hospitals were filled to overflowing. It's just impossible for the new generation to understand. In another interview, you mentioned being so surrounded by death that you even saw someone die on the street. Yeah, right in front of the cafe floor, Market and Noe. He looked like an old man, and he collapsed as we got closer. We realized he was someone in his 20s. But I could tell you a story about every building on those first three blocks of Castro Street. I could. This is where Simon died. This is where Billy died. This is where Henry committed suicide. This is where they found Luis, you know, a month after he died because no one was left to check on him. This is where George starved to death because he was too weak to shop and nobody brought him food. I mean, I could just... Uh, it was a very concentrated experience. And the night that I had the idea for the quilt was in uh, mid-November of 1985, and the headline in the San Francisco Chronicle that day, I was out putting up flyers reminding people of the annual candlelight tribute to Harvey Milk and George Moscone on November 27th, and there was a headline in the paper. We had stopped at the corner of Castro and Market to get a slice of pizza, and we're picking up the newspaper, and the headline said, A Thousand San Franciscans Dead from AIDS. Well, if you stand at Castro and Market and look three blocks east, three blocks west, three blocks north, and three blocks south, those first thousand who died all lived in that square. And there was no evidence. Beautifully restored Victorians, cafes, clubs, restaurants, you smell coffee and food, you hear music and laughter, but no evidence. I remember just getting kind of enraged and saying to my buddy, you know, I wish if, if you if you gave me a bulldozer right now, I'd knock down these buildings. And maybe if people walked by here and saw a meadow with a thousand corpses rotting in the sun, they'd get what was happening. And if they were humans, they'd respond. They'd be compelled to. But it was like this invisible thing and no response and Reagan, you know, not even saying the word aloud. I think the estimate is that in my little neighborhood, which is really six blocks, we were losing about between 1,500 and 2,000 a year. And most abandoned, of course, by their families, their biological families. Not always, but mostly. I think we're all grateful that we're not reminded of every day by watching people we love die, but we ought to be thinking about it every day because there are young people being infected every day. Anyone who's infected needs to get treatment immediately, before their immune system collapses, and before they transmit it to other people. This has been a conversation with innovator, educator, activist, friend, Cleve Jones. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. 
Steve Jones is such a personal hero of mine. You've met him, Rick. I have a number of uh, number of occasions over the years. But not only is, has he been instrumental in so much of the LGBT community, he's a, an amazing labor leader fighting the rights of um, union workers at hotels. Cleve mm-hmm. has been active not only in the labor movement and with the uh, the quilt, probably his most famous work, but he was also a longtime associate of uh, uh, of Harvey Milk. For those who remember the movie. Uh, he's the sidekick in there, that was Neil Hirsch, correct? Correct. Hirsch. Yes. Wow. Well, after the break, I'll talk to Michael Gottlieb, the pioneering doctor who first discovered AIDS back in 1981. Meanwhile, we should mention that there was no news wrap tonight because of the Thanksgiving holiday, but on this week's special, This Way Out, <laughs> Vash Bodhi chats with Bayard Rustin's partner for the last 10 years of his life, Walter Nagel, about the legacy of the out civil rights icon. And we interview, and I interviewed, the trailblazing New York lesbian feminist, Carla J., about her early days in the movement. Listen anytime on iTunes, Stitcher Radio On Demand, or the podcast at thiswayout.org. And be sure to support This Way Out tomorrow on Giving Tuesday. Don't go away. We'll be right back. World AIDS Day, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. World AIDS Day, observed every December the 1st, is dedicated to raising awareness of the AIDS epidemic caused by the spread of HIV. The concept originated in 1988 at the World Summit of Ministers of Health on Programs for AIDS Prevention. Since then, it's been taken up by governments, organizations, and charities worldwide. Since 2005, the project has been spearheaded by World AIDS Campaign. On World AIDS Day, governments and health officials give speeches and lead forums on HIV-AIDS topics. And of course, memorials to honor those who have died of AIDS are held all over the world. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Vaughn Gary. Hi, I'm Alec Mappa and you're listening to IMRU on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 China Lake and 93.7 in San Diego. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Steve Prine. I'm Rick Watts. And I'm Miss Barbecue. And the time is now 7.23. Truth and disclosure. I was diagnosed with HIV in 1991. I think I've been positive since 1983. And since 1998, one of my HIV specialists has been Dr. Michael S. Gottlieb, not just a great doctor and a friend. He's the immunologist who first identified AIDS as a new disease and a global threat to public health that it has become. Then in 1985, with Elizabeth Taylor and Matilda Krim, he founded 
co-founded AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research, with a quarter-million-dollar gift from the estate of his patient, Rock Hudson. And Friday, he took the time from his very busy schedule to stop by KPFK with, for chat with Rick Watts. Since its initial detection in 1981, HIV has gone on to infect more than 75 million people worldwide, killing some 35 million of those. Dr. Michael Gottlieb first documented AIDS as a disease back then. Dr. Gottlieb, what is HIV, what is AIDS, and how does HIV work? HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. It causes AIDS slowly. It infects a person and then works its damage over years. On an average of 10 or so years, kind of gnawing away at the immune system to a point where the immune system becomes so low that the patient is developing these opportunistic diseases with bacteria and fungi and protozoa. And when a person develops these opportunistic diseases, they're considered to have AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Now, a couple of years later, the CDC refined that definition to say that anybody whose T-cell count or CD4 count fell below a number of 200, that they were considered to have AIDS as well. And the reason for that is that when the count falls below 200, at least in the old days before treatment, uh, patients were clearly very susceptible to developing one of the opportunistic diseases. And so CDC wanted to make their definition more sensitive so as to get an accurate count of how many people, in fact, had the disease. And this, of course, is before the advent of the HIV antibody test, which tells you, really, who is HIV positive and who's HIV negative. Back then, why would someone have not taken the test? In those days, having a positive test was a death sentence because there were no available treatments. So I can understand a person not wanting to take the test, not wanting to know if there's no available therapy. What's the point of taking the test if there's no treatment? How did you first come to be acquainted with what has since come to be known as AIDS? It was 1981. I was a junior professor at UCLA. In the midst of a teaching exercise, I asked one of my postdoctoral fellows to find a patient who had a disease with immunologic features. And he went to the wards and came back to tell me about our first patient with AIDS. Of course, it didn't have a name at that time. He was a 31-year-old man with fevers and pneumocystis pneumonia, one of the opportunistic infections that we've since associated with the immune deficiency caused by HIV. So this patient was very interesting, and we wondered whether he would be just one of a kind, that we would never see another patient like him, when in fact uh, in the next few weeks we saw three more patients who were virtual carbon copies of the first patient. And it seemed at that time that something very unusual was going on, worthy of reporting to the health authorities. This was not a subtle illness. This was rather severe, dramatic, and life-threatening from the get-go. And, of course, I was concerned and, and worried for their well-being. I began to think that this was going to be something very large, but I had no idea that it would be what it's become today, 
worldwide. This was something that wasn't in any textbook. So we looked in the lab right away and with colleagues looked at the immune system under the microscope and found that this patient was deficient in these T cells called helper T cells or CD4 cells. And that seemed to be the basis of the immune deficiency. Something, some unknown event or exposure or toxin or even a virus was attacking this particular arm of the immune system. And there was a lot of speculation at first, with a lot of wild theories as to what was causing this because our first four patients were all gay men. There was the popper theory, there was immune system overload, there was African swine fever, there was all sorts of wild stuff. But from the get-go, we thought it was a viral disease because there was precedent for other viruses causing at least a transient or temporary immune system depression. And we thought that, in fact, the immune system damage in some of these patients might heal on its own, comparable to what we saw with some other viral diseases, but that wasn't to be the case with HIV. Are there still people out there who think that HIV doesn't cause AIDS? Yeah, there are a few people out there like that. I think there are fewer people like that than there used to be, because some of the people who, in fact, claim that, in fact, were HIV positive and wound up dying of AIDS and their children dying of AIDS. So it's kind of difficult to, uh, in those circumstances, to say that their HIV was not the cause of their ultimate immune deficiency and death. And let me just add that the treatments that we've developed that are aimed directly at HIV and at no other virus or dietary issue or any other claim, those treatments have turned around the HIV epidemic here in the United States such that people stopped dying as often as they did in the mid-1990s as a result of the institution and availability of life-saving medication directed against HIV, specifically. What happened to those first four patients? Well, all those patients died within uh, 9 to 12 months of coming to attention Again, this was a dramatic illness. They were at the advanced stage of immune system burnout due to HIV. They had essentially no immune system left and fell prey to these opportunistic viruses and bacteria that caused their deaths very quickly. In those early days of the epidemic, when the government wasn't paying attention, the gay community wasn't paying too much attention, but you had all these patients that were coming into you, and uh, there wasn't a lot that you could offer them. How did that feel? Oh, that was awful. That was just awful. We had these AIDS units in various hospitals and Sherman Oaks and at Midway Hospital, and at any time there'd be 20 or 30 patients on a ward, all with AIDS, and it was like a MASH unit. You would patch them up and send them out, and they'd be back weeks or months later with some other horrible infection. And I remember patients very well by name and and what they looked like and uh, just how much I wanted to help them and uh, powerless to do that. In the period of time that was covered in the Dallas Buyers Club movie, when we had so little to offer patients, I still remember patients who we lost 
uh, because we just didn't have medications. And just how much they wanted to survive and how much we wanted to help them, and yet we were powerless to, to do anything but provide comfort care and let them know we were trying. I think it helped them to know we were trying, that we were still doctoring, that we were still listening to them and hearing about their lives and what made them happy and in the times they were out of hospital. But it was a very awful experience for anybody in the medical profession, specifically myself. It was a uh, painful experience. What was the most difficult part of sounding the alarm to alert everyone that something was going on that they needed to pay attention to? Well, the most difficult part was trying to figure out how to do it. I was uh, an immunologist by training and not an infectious disease doctor. And so my first instinct was to call the editor of a medical journal rather than the CDC. Fortunately, the uh, editor of the medical journal suggested that I call CDC. And once I called CDC, there really was no problem in sounding the alarm. CDC recognized that it might be important and invited us to submit our cases for publication. They were published. They were widely read uh, across the United States. People in other cities who were seeing patients said, aha, here is what we've been seeing. It's the same thing as uh, these people are reporting in the, the journal. That was no difficulty. I think there was a resistance certainly in uh, the gay community, to accepting the fact that there was something new, that there was something possibly affecting that community more than other communities. People, for good reason, wanted to go on with their lives. They didn't necessarily want to believe that there was some new threat. Where did HIV come from? Is it new, or was it newly recognized? Well, it was newly recognized in 1981, but pretty clearly there were some cases, a smattering of cases happening in other cities prior to our description of the disease in 1981. From looking at frozen specimens of blood from blood donors in the United States, it's pretty clear that HIV was certainly here as early as 1977. And uh, further studies of frozen specimens revealed an HIV-positive specimen from Zaire from 1958. And so pretty clearly it's a virus that was percolating out there under the radar for a long time. And even further studies date its crossover from the chimp species into humans as early as 1915. And the crossover from primates to humans is pretty easy to explain because protein sources in sub-Saharan Africa are scarce. People do eat what they can kill in the bush, and they can kill chimps and other primate species. And one can imagine a hunter uh, butchering an animal, cutting themselves. In the course of doing that, the mixing of the blood occurs, and the virus jumps from the chimpanzee species over to the human species. And... This event is actually thought to have happened at least five times in history in sub-Saharan Africa. If someone contracts HIV, do they always develop AIDS if left untreated? Most people who contract HIV do go on to develop AIDS. However, there's a small percentage of people who are what we call long-term non-progressors, where their own immune system seems to contain HIV and work against it, and they're protected from developing the immune system burnout 
that leads to the opportunistic infections. And those patients are actually very interesting, have been widely studied in terms of what it takes to contain HIV. And that's very relevant to HIV vaccine development, to know how certain patients are able to get a handle and squelch the virus. What happens if HIV is inadequately treated? Well, unfortunately, we had a lot of experience with that in the late 80s and early 90s when we had only one or two drugs. And the problem there is that HIV has a marked uh, tendency to develop resistance to antiviral drugs. So inadequate treatment means using only one drug or two drugs where it really takes three drugs to contain the virus. And that's what we discovered in 1995 with what's called highly active antiretroviral therapy or the cocktail. But people can still mess up with the cocktail and take the drug intermittently or miss doses of a drug, and that gives the virus an opening to develop resistance, and the drugs fail and can never be used again. We have heard a lot recently about something called PrEP. Is it a good idea or not? I think it's unnecessarily controversial. It is just one more thing that a person who's HIV negative can do in addition to safer sex and condoms to protect themselves against HIV. The science is sound. The medication, Truvada, is available with prescription. It has to be used properly, correctly, and, and those of us who prescribe it take special pains to educate our patients who are HIV negative how to use Truvada in addition to other measures to protect themselves against contracting HIV. There are people who will not use it according to the instructions, and they are taking some risk. But if they're already not using condoms, and we know that gay men are using condoms perhaps 50% of the time on average, it seems to me that it is an important harm reduction strategy to make Truvada available even to patients who aren't practicing safer sex as at least an effort to prevent their contracting HIV. Along the lines of needle exchanges for IV drug addicts? Exactly. Something that reduces the risk of contracting a disease. We already know that there's a lot of unsafe sex going on, and this is one more measure to prevent HIV transmission. But the science of PrEP is good. And uh, my experience so far is that uh, patients that I've prescribed it for are using it very responsibly and have not changed the nature of their sexual life. The development of resistance in the virus, could that be likened to evolution? Oh, absolutely. That's what it is. It's survival of the fittest. It's the virus uh, evolving to develop mutations that allow it to escape the drugs. It's not anything by design. It's kind of random. It's selection pressure, kind of like finches in certain environments. If the food isn't there for them, for one type of finch, another type of finch exploits that and becomes the dominant species. And the same is true for HIV in terms of its variants. This is Rick Watts. You're listening to IMRU Radio, and I'm talking with Dr. Michael Gottlieb, who in 1981 first discovered AIDS and wrote the first paper sounding the alarms on AIDS. To look at the medication advertisements or to listen to some folks, I get the feeling that there's a perception out there that HIV is no longer a big deal anymore. Are they right or wrong, and why? 
It is a big deal. Uh, I don't know anybody with HIV who wouldn't want to turn back the clock to a time when they were HIV negative. Saying that, people can live comfortably, productively, healthy lives with HIV, provided that they can get the medication they need and that they take it. I have some issue with uh, depicting uh, everybody with HIV as looking very healthy, uh, totally well, very sexy, because it minimizes the impact that HIV is in fact having on them, that they may look very well, which is great, but they are still coping uh, with being HIV positive. The drugs and the condition itself has long-term consequences uh, with respect to what we call the comorbidities, uh, things that come along with the disease state, osteoporosis for some patients uh, and for some drugs, higher incidence of heart disease and diabetes, uh, all associated with being HIV positive. Side effects of these medications and long-term tolls to the body, are there other syndromes patients and doctors need to be aware of? There's, uh, you mentioned osteoporosis. Are there other arthritic conditions or autoimmune or other conditions? There are some other conditions. There are some autoimmune conditions that people need to be aware of. They're fortunately rare. With regard to side effects, I would say that uh, over the years, the medical community has attempted to weed out the drugs that are most associated with side effects, such as neuropathy, painful fingers and toes. We, we have avoided the drugs that do that, and we use them in the 90s. But we've constantly refined medication regimens to minimize side effects, and the new regimens are, in fact, very effective and much cleaner with regard to side effects than the older ones. That said, there's still a requirement to take medication every day. And there are still some side effects associated with medication. And so it's better for people to avoid HIV and not have to take medication. So to those young folks who are HIV negative and say, well, it's no big deal, I'll just take a pill every day, uh, it is a big deal. How do you work with these issues and keep them manageable from a medical standpoint and a quality of life standpoint? Well, we're constantly reviewing patient medication regimens with our patients, trying to weed out medications that may be causing a side effect, such as high cholesterol or high triglycerides. We constantly try to refine our regimens. Now that HIV for doctors is easier to manage, we also are paying more attention to these comorbidities, to getting back to being just regular doctors again, looking at uh, blood pressure issues, blood sugar issues, cholesterol issues, the typical issues associated with an aging population. As you're probably aware, by 2015 next year, it's anticipated that 50% of people living with HIV in this country are going to be over 50 years of age. So if there are 1.3 million living with HIV, that's uh, roughly 700,000 people with HIV over age 50. Not that long ago, we would have been surprised to, to hear about that. People are finally living long enough. In the 80s and early 90s, the situation was pretty bleak, and we couldn't imagine taking care of 80-year-olds with HIV. And indeed, uh, in my own practice, there are several. Those patients are very happy to still be with us, and their quality of life is actually very good. Any developments on the horizon that look particularly promising to you? Well, one thing that looks interesting is the ability to take medication less frequently. There are a couple of drugs in development that may allow a person to be treated once a month with uh, an intravenous uh, preparation of medications with a very long 
what we call half-life, one that sticks around for a long time. And that would be particularly applicable to uh, patient populations who are not as obsessive and not as adherent to taking their daily medicine. A couple of other things are interesting. Uh, one of them is uh, cure research, where there is, in fact, uh, one bona fide HIV cure. I met him most recently for the first time at the U.S. Conference on AIDS in San Diego, Timothy Brown, the so-called Berlin, Berlin patient. And we had a great uh, opportunity to, to chat and had some photos taken together. And it's just exciting for me to meet somebody who, through heroic measures, was able to eliminate uh, HIV very convincingly, which says that, yes, it can be done. Uh, my own view is that it's not going to be easy. There's got to be an a better way than what Mr. Brown went through, which were bone marrow transplants for uh, leukemia, which was a second disease that he had. But researchers at medical centers are working on easier ways to uh, rid the body of HIV. I don't think it's going to be next week or the week after, but it may be something on a five or 10 year plan. A year or so ago, there was uh, news about an infant that return to negative status. I seem to remember reading recently, though, that that didn't pan out. You're right. The virus recurred in this infant who was off medication. And so that was disappointing, but not entirely surprising because the virus does hide in reservoirs in the body, and it can, in fact, be latent there and only emerge at a later time. But these cases are important opportunities to study and figure out, you know, what it takes to eliminate the virus. I have to say that uh, it's great when the media cover HIV at all these days because they rarely do. But they kind of go overboard on some developments, like the Mississippi baby. And you read about it and hear about it for weeks after the story breaks. That, of course, is because the news media cover something new in a disease state. They don't cover a disease that's endemic, like HIV, that's part of the background of illness in America. They cover epidemic, like Ebola. The fact that there are 20,000 cases of Ebola in West Africa, yes, that is big news, I agree. But the fact that there are 35 million people in the world today living with HIV and that that information never makes it into the mainstream media, that troubles me. So much progress has been made with HIV over the 30-plus years since you documented it. Has that had an impact on the research and treatment of other diseases? Oh, very definitely. Uh, the uh, gains that we've made in HIV have been the model for the development of treatments for other diseases. For example, chronic hepatitis C. The drugs that are now being rolled out just in the last few months for the treatment of patients with chronic hepatitis C were developed using the same model, the same combination cocktail approach that we used for HIV. And this model may be applicable to other disease states, other viral illnesses, including Ebola. I get the impression that not only are there some of the medications that are applicable across those two platforms, but that even some of the basic building blocks of science in terms of understanding the cell's molecular biology and even that, had it been 
Ebola that had crawled out of the jungle first instead of HIV, we would have been in a much worse situation. I think you're right. We were lucky that HIV came to attention first, and it came about at a time when there was kind of a revolution in uh, biotechnology. Uh, the availability of monoclonal antibodies and the availability of DNA technology. And in mid-1990s, we got access to what's called the viral load test for HIV, which proves to be the new gold standard of success in therapy. But we didn't have anything like that prior to the mid-90s, just 20 years ago. And that's been invaluable in the management of HIV. So we, in a sense, have been lucky to have the access to these tools to deal with the HIV epidemic. And it goes back to the idea that basic research pays dividends. In the now 33-plus years since you first sounded that alarm, what have been your most encouraging and inspiring moments in this epidemic? There have been a lot of inspiring moments. Our patients inspired us early on, patients who knew that we didn't have what we needed to help them, but we we're doing the best we could. They appreciated that, and they didn't in any way critique us for not having the answer. And the uh, gay community has been very inspirational with regard to establishing community organizations and activism, such as ACT UP, putting pressure on the regulatory agencies to make drugs available sooner. All of that's been very inspiring. Uh, I was fortunate to be uh, involved with Miss Elizabeth Taylor in her work in fundraising for HIV and creating awareness for HIV. And of course, I, I met her in the aftermath of my caring for Rock Hudson when he had AIDS in the mid-80s. And that event uh, was kind of a pivotal event, a tipping point, if you will, in the public's awareness of the disease and the epidemic. Prior to Rock Hudson, the AIDS epidemic was very hush-hush, and after that event, people began to be more aware of it and develop some sense of empathy for people who were living with the virus. What do you say to someone coming into you now as a new HIV patient? There's several types of patients. Some patients come in never having tested for HIV, and once they test, they find that they're positive. They may have had some inclination that they were positive, and that's why they never tested. And so they come in, and we get a baseline as to where their disease state is at, and we can offer them medication. And we emphasize the adherence message, and we sit with them and with a menu of different options of medications, and they choose what's going to be most uh, convenient for them and what side effects they're willing to put up with and what side effects they're not willing to put up with and how many times a day to take their medication. So those patients, I can pretty well tell them they'll do well and feel better and have a better prognosis once they start medication. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball to tell them that they're going to have a normal life expectancy similar to the age-matched HIV-negative person. Can't say that. The other type of patients I see are young men who are newly HIV positive, just having converted. And I feel very badly in that circumstance because, as you know, there are 50,000 people every year who become newly HIV infected. And many of those are young people who weren't taking precautions. 
And that's where this issue of PrEP comes in, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And when I see somebody 21 years old, newly HIV positive, I say to myself, what more could we have been doing to prevent this person from becoming HIV positive and having to deal with this for a lifetime? But there's nothing different that I can do because it's, it's too late. But of course, we will prescribe medication for that person and their prognosis is excellent. But I certainly wish that we'd had an opportunity to intervene prior to their becoming HIV positive. And uh, I feel fortunate that at least in my lifetime, we were able to advance the state of the art to where we are today, which is a much happier situation where I can tell someone, uh, yeah, we can manage this. Dr. Michael Gottlieb, it's been a real honor speaking with you. I think it's no exaggeration to say that many, many people here and around the world are still alive today because of what you have done and continue to do. Not many people can say that. Thank you for all you continue to do. Thank you, Rick. Find more information about Dr. Gottlieb at michaelgottliebmd.com. And that does it for us tonight. What a fantastic show tonight, guys. Very poignant. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, social media maestro John Dyer V, coordinating producer Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Tonight's show is dedicated to everyone lost to AIDS, those living with HIV, and on a personal level, it's dedicated to my best friend and my first love, my first real love, Patrick McGuire, who faced the end with bravery and with grace. I'd also like to take the time out to dedicate a shout-out of love, strength, and admiration to all those affected with HIV, too. I have had close friends this year diagnosed this year, and it's, um, it's hit me more than, a, more than usual. And uh, I would like to dedicate uh, those who are fighting for a cure and those living with HIV today. Know that I love you very, very much. And I'd like to dedicate this in memory of the too many friends to name without tears. And to those still living with this disease... Never, never, never give up. Be here for the cure, however long it takes, and fight like hell for everyone with AIDS. Of the 35 million people still living with HIV around the world, only 3 million currently have access to the life-giving medications that keep others alive. We're going to close with a song from my friend Steve Shacklin, who's been living with HIV for over 20 years. It's about a time of desperation, a time before there were any real treatments, a time when the elusive cure was just a rumor. A rumor that came to you via somebody's friend. Somebody's friend took a trip to Chinatown. Somebody's friend got secret herbs. Somebody's friend got cured of HIV. But when I ask if I could meet somebody's friend, they say it's not my friend, it's a friend of somebody. Somebody's friend tried Moonstone therapy Somebody's friend tried some new drug That came from Cleveland Drawn from a bug They found in England Somebody's friend got cured of HIV But when I ask if I could meet Somebody's friend
where the HIV free party never ends. And I'm thinking, I would really like to be somebody's friend. Somebody's friend just got pneumonia. Friend.